Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Bob Hutchins, a lifelong digital marketer who later in his career pursued behavioral psychology. Our conversation bridges these two and unveils some really interesting insights. I also appreciate the nuance and depth in which Bob can speak on these subjects. I'd also like to point out that in what we discuss, it's applicable across the board of marketing, from B2B to B2C, and in the case of investors, B2I. You'll take a lot from this one, so enjoy the episode. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Corey. It's good to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation as in our pre-caller just just now, I was just saying we connected because I saw a lot of the work you do on LinkedIn, the background in marketing, but also behavioral psychology. And I'm very curious to learn more because I think it's it's applicable to everything, including the world of finance that we're in, but everything in building business and life. So the best place for us to start, though, is an introduction from yourself. So I'm going to hand it over to you. Yeah. Well, thank you. When you reached out to me and I saw the Insider's Guide to Finance, first I thought, well, maybe he thought he reached out to the wrong person. Although I have been involved in running my own business and finance is certainly part of it. That hasn't been the focus of my career. But then as we got more into it and he started talking about marketing and things like that, then I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation. So to give you a little bit about myself, I live in Nashville, right outside of Nashville. I've been here about 21 years. My career has been primarily agency, consulting, writing, teaching, working with brands of all different sizes and all different verticals, putting together strategies to either go direct to consumer or B2B as well in the context of sales, conversions, attendance. I worked in the entertainment business with lots of clients for many years, et cetera, et cetera. That experience honestly has really driven me over the course of years of having been in in the digital marketing arena early, 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 late 90s, early 2000s, started my own agency in the early 2000s here in in Nashville, was pretty successful, grew that, closed it down in 2017. We can talk about that later if you'd like. And has since then have been doing kind of some interesting shifts, continuing to work in and around agency life, multiple clients, startups, Fortune 1000 companies across the board. But my really passion and love is that intersection of technology, psychology, culture, media, media theory. Mm. I've been really getting into that. Like you said, I went back and got my master's degree in behavioral and organizational psychology to really wrap my head around that a little bit. And so I've been actually writing one of my my side interest is the effects, good, bad, and indifferent of technology on 
the human existence and experience. I have a book coming out with my co-writer, Jenny Black, in about two weeks. It's called Our Digital Soul, about that. So I have a lot of different interests, married with three kids, a poodle, just love the whole intersection, like I said, of psychology, technology, culture, all of those things. Yeah. Wow. There's a lot I want to ask you. I'm very curious about all of that as well. You know, I threw around the ideas of going back to school for psychology a bit, and then I really just came to grips with it. I am not an academic. I am not a student of that kind of world. I highly appreciate it, but it's just not not who I am. I learn different ways. But when it comes down to to psychology and marketing, and also something else you've introduced is math into that equation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What excites you? Where do you go? And and maybe to get a finer point on that, if you were to even use frameworks that apply to the world of marketing, what are they? Yeah, the framework that I use, some people would say it's very reductionist, but I believe in my experience and my career of working now for 20 plus years in the digital marketing arena, seeing it grow and evolve, seeing different frameworks, seeing the most complicated funnel creation, data analytics, optimization strategies, all the way down to the other side of the equation, people who are still Luddites, still using physical mail, and some of them very successful in their lead generation. What I've come to realize and understand, Corey, is that, again, this may sound kind of simple, but I I think we could unpack it and I think you will see how relevant it is. And what I say is, Good marketing is nothing more than behavioral psychology and math. You have to understand what gets people to engage, to move, to purchase, to purchase again your product. If you're a nonprofit, to donate. So you have to understand what gets people to do what you get them to do. So that's the psychology. And then you have to analyze, measure, optimize and scale up. That's where all the math comes in. And it's just numbers at that point. So again, there's a lot in that and there's a lot of tools. There's a lot of, like you said, frameworks. But I think if you can start there, it helps to clear a lot of the, I think, confusion. Like I've been doing this a long time and there's always a latest and greatest shiny button that people Mm. like to say, When Facebook came out, it was like Facebook. Well, now it's hard to market on Facebook. So now it's TikTok or should I be doing Instagram marketing? You know, what kind of tools should I be using for email marketing and retargeting? Those things are going to come and go. I've seen those things rise. I've seen them fall. I've seen them rise again, but it's, it's really psychology and math. And if you can really wrap your head around that, really understand the frameworks of how that works then you can apply it to any technology, any age as things evolve and change. Yeah, I see where you're going there. It's the access to audiences, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, from a marketing standpoint, that can change and they come and go. But how you capture somebody's attention and bring them through that funnel and sales process is is a a framework or a structure to, to really be focusing on. With From a psychological standpoint, how do you formulate messages that convert? And what do you start to look at? Do you have any case examples where you could say, okay, this company was doing this and we tweaked it like this because we used a psychological framework to 
hook a person, something like that. Yeah. Well, a couple of things I would say is that one of the premises premises that I work from is that good marketing is not just psychology and math. So yeah, that that is the basis. Okay. Part of that psychology, let's part there to answer your question, is when it comes to communication and purchasing, donating, investing, when you're trying to get someone to do something, the primary way that you do it and that we all function is you have to create what I call the human mirror. And the human mirror is this. I'm not going to respond, engage, purchase if I can't see myself in that message. So let me give you an example. Hmm. If I'm selling skateboards, which I love to skateboard, by the way, it's one of my hobbies. Awesome. (laughs) If I'm selling skateboards, I am not going to put that ad in front of 40 to 55-year-old teachers that live in the Northeast, right? Now, there might be a teacher in that demographic that loves skateboarding. However, in general, that's not the mirror. So they can't see themselves with a skateboard. Therefore, Mm -hmm. they're just going to flip on by and it didn't make no sense. Now, what I do want to, if I had the coolest, hippest skateboard and I want to sell it, I might get it in front of a certain demographic. And thereby lies the work of understanding who they are, where they hang out, look at competitors, see what they're doing, use third-party tool to see what ads they're using. And then once you have that demographic and that psychographic narrowed down, you can get that ad in front of them. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, this skateboarder, this 17, 15 year old male that lives on the West Coast or the Southeast by the water and is outside a lot, they could see themselves with my skateboard. So that's Mm -hmm. the first thing. That's the first part of the mirror. So if you look at a full body mirror, the first one is, can I see my face in it? So that's where the demographic and psychographic comes in. Second part is, is it relevant to me? Do I need another skateboard? Is it that time of year when that is a popular thing? Is there a new technology out that only I have? So there's that relevancy issue. And then there's also the aspect of peers. Can I see in that mirror other people doing it? See, there's something called social proof in psychology and marketing. And it's why when we go on Amazon, Corey, we're not really there to read the description of the product. We might kind of glance at it. We know what we want. We know what we're searching for. We've already seen it on the website of the brand. Now we go to Amazon to see if we can get it cheaper and with free shipping, right? Yeah. But what do we spend our time looking at? Yeah, it's straight to the, the reviews. reviews. Straight to the reviews, right? Okay, this product has 3.7. And I don't know. This one over here has 4.2. So it's well, got to be better. Further into social social proof and reviews. Yeah. For myself, I'll look at the reviews, and then sometimes I look to see if people have pictures, and then I'll look in the pictures, and I know this is terrible. I can't believe I'm saying this. I'll even look at, for example, the background of the picture to see how organized they are, to see what kind of floors they have, to social proof the situation. To be like, I think I trust that more. I identify. I, I relate to that. And put more emphasis on that review than others. 
I don't know if I, I might be, I hope nobody comes at me for that, but it feels so funny saying it. No, it's, it proves my example of if I can't see other people using this product and that social proof. And here's the funny thing about it, Corey, humans never cease to amaze me and myself because I count myself in that is in the back of our heads while we're doing it, you know that those reviews could be fake. Oh, you yes. know that they could be paid for, but it doesn't matter, right? It's like, I'm going to trust the four to five star review more than I'm going to trust the three to four star review, even though the three to four might be real human mm. accurate. And the other one might have had, you know, 80% of them paid off. I know that in the back of my head, but I'm still going to make that decision. That human proof desire is stronger than my logic. Mm. So again, in that marketing mirror, it's relevancy, reflection of myself, reflection of other people. And the last one I would say is the most important that stands the test of time. In that mirror, you have to have human connection. Everyone who sees or reads your communication or ad is going to be a human being. So they first and foremost are connecting on a real human level and filter. If they don't feel that reflecting back, if they don't feel that it's authentic, that it's real, that it's sincere, that it's one human talking to another human, hmm. consciously or subconsciously, they will go, they will pass right on. So we have entered into an age in the last decade or so where people kind of are in the driver's seat on that and they know. Mm -hmm. And that's why lately, more and more, some of the studies I've seen come out in the last year or two is people don't even trust influencers who are representing a product because they know they got paid yeah, yeah. for representing that product. And they're like, that person would never buy that or use that. Yeah. That's not real. Yeah. And so yeah. there's that human connection, the relevancy, reflection of themselves, and then reflection of other people using that product. So that's what I call the human mirror. And I think that's a good overview from the psychological standpoint. It's a neat way to look at it. I've never thought to look at that. And, and I can think of a couple other examples. One is they're out of Nashville as well, StoryBrand. And when they talk about the hero yeah. and the guide, nobody looks at yeah. themselves as the guide. That's the company. And the hero being the person who's standing in the mirror. And if it is a perfect reflection, you've fulfilled your formulas on here. Something else that you say is that, that human connection. This is something that I try to emphasize to our clients all the time is public companies. Whenever they go and put a press release out, it gets heavily lawyered up and it has to be, you know, make sure it passes through the regulators and so on and so forth. But it's also, it's always spoken as the company company name has done this. There's no personal touch to it. There's no feel to it. And I argue, like telling blue in the face that there's no legal issue with putting forward a personal message to it. If you can put a CEO quote in there, why can't the rest of the thing be written in a way that people actually want to read and engage with it? And so I try to emphasize that because I think your point is so important that it's personal. People want to have a personal connection. And I would argue even further that across the board, we're dying to have that human connection again. Absolutely. We just look at screens all the time and our life is becoming a constant flick of posts. But how can you actually have that connection again? Yeah, I mean, empathy. I did a TED Talk back in May about ambiguous loss and tragic optimism. And one of the points that I made in that 
Corey was that the positive effect of the pandemic, it has provided, and this is the term tragic optimism that Viktor Frankl coined, is that finding those positive in the midst of a really difficult situation is the key really to living a purpose-filled life and ultimately finding joy that is something that ensues, not pursued, but ensues afterwards. And to your point is we're now more aware of what we call soft skills, which I hate that term, in the workplace. People are talking about mental wellness. People are talking about work-life balance. And one of the things that I think we're getting back to is, hey, let's just be nice human beings. Let's try in a world that, that is trying to force us to not be nice to each other. How empathy jumps out and it's rewarded. Authenticity, vulnerability, showing weakness, not just strength, like you're saying, connect emotionally. You know, one tip that I always say that's so simple, and we know this, Corey, is show human faces as much as possible in your marketing and advertising. Yeah, It's proven in study after study that people connect almost immediately to another human face, whatever it may be, whatever emotion it may be, just show an authentic human face with some sort of engagement, some sort of emotion. That alone, if you just did one thing, that could be the difference maker for people scrolling through and something inside of them, like you said, I want to connect with another human being. Let's get back to being human again, it feels like. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, again, it sounds so simple, but you're sending this to human beings. You're not sending it to robots. You're not sending it to animals. You're not sending it to your dog. You're sending it to another human being, human to human at the other end of the screen. And that's why I've always pushed against and I've I've always had an issue in my marketing career, especially 5, 10, 15 years ago. I would hear executives say, do you have experience with B2B marketing online? Because, you know, businesses don't use social media. And it Mm. would drive me nuts because when we start using those acronyms, we remove the human element from it, right? We start saying B2B, B2C, mass marketing. Nobody is a mass person. No one is an acronym. No Mm. one's a letter. You're wanting me to help you talk to another human being about something that they see as value or non-value and that you have a solution for. Those are two human beings connecting. And those human beings can connect on levels and on things outside of just what you're trying to sell them. That's the magic. And that's where you have to be looking. And again, psychology and math, that's good marketing. Hmm, fascinating. Something that you mentioned that I want to tap into is media theory. You mentioned in, in your intro there. What is that and what has you interested there? Well, you know, working so long, Corey, in marketing and online and then getting into psychology, you cannot ignore the effects and the power of the media that is used to market your message. So let me give you an example. One of my heroes is Marshall McLuhan. I don't know if you've read any of his work. He was a Canadian professor in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. He coined the term, the media is the message. He also coined the term global village. He was way, way ahead of his time. But 
one of the things he really spent time on and many people since him and is we don't do enough study and thought around the effect and the power of the media that's being used. So when he says the media is the message, his point was that the message, the content is always secondary to the media that it's delivered on or through. So for instance, if I'm using Twitter to market to say your target demographic, investors or finance, there's certain things I can and should and will say on Twitter that varies greatly from what I can, should, and say in an email. It varies Mm -hmm. greatly to how I might say it on Instagram. It varies to how I might use it to make a commercial for television. And that's really, really important because what is being communicated is secondary to the platform that you're communicating it on. And so you have to say, how do I communicate my message through Twitter and get it through when actually the people that are using Twitter are using it in a way, not necessarily to consume information and messages, but actually they become the screens themselves. And that's what McLuhan was really talking about is we can watch a screen, whether it be on our phones in front of a computer, on a TV at night. But really, we are the screens, meaning those little bits of information, those letters, those are secondary because I'm interpreting them through my own lens, through my own addiction Mm -hmm. to these screens, through my own anxiousness. And so how does Twitter make that person feel? How do they function on it? How do they use it? So that's media. Mm-hmm. That's kind of touching on media theory. We can go really deep on that, but yeah. So, so sorry. I just want to clarify mm-hmm. for my own thinking here that when you look at the channel which you're going through, the media which you're going through, like Twitter, as very different than picking up the phone or sending an email. The message coming through there, understanding how the person is interacting with the media itself, is critical to to getting through to that person. That's right. It's yeah. it, it just makes me think if if you look at a tweet and somebody sent you just the equivalent of an, in an email, you look at it, you go, what the hell is this? That's right. Hmm. That's right. Okay. And so that tells you, wait a second, is it the message that's important as much as understanding the platform? So for instance, you and I are talking right now, right? We're on the same screen and people can listen to us in the car if you got this show edited quick, say next week, it'll probably come out in October, but let's say three years from now. To them, they're listening for the first time. You and I speak as if we were sitting in their car with them. Same mm-hmm. thing as in video. I'm watching you and you're right here with me in my study room right now. We have become disembodied from our physical bodies to engage in this medium, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm no longer in space and time, no longer irrelevant in this medium. My physical body is no longer relevant in this medium. So for all intents and purposes, I have to understand, you have to understand that this medium that we're using is outside of time and space. 
and spatial because I'm literally not there with you and you're not literally not here with me. We're there together in some other place. And that then can be enjoyed. It can be consumed for years to come. Understanding that and saying, how then and how should I communicate in those environments? Because, you know, TV revolutionized the way that news was consumed, right? Prior to that, you would sit down and you would read a newspaper in the morning and have your coffee. And it might be 24 to 48 hours behind time because it took that long for people to find it, write it down, then type it up and get it out. But people were fine with that. And they could then go back and read it throughout the day and consume it. And in their brain, create their own pictures and imaginations of what might have happened. Now, we have a very different environment where it's the speed of light, real time happening, and it's being driven by a mechanism that is rewarded by keeping your eyeballs coming back, Mm. by raising your blood pressure, by getting you excited. How can those algorithms keep you coming back and clicking so that they can make money and that's how they stay alive? So again, we've become the product, we've become the screens, the messages are all kind of secondary. So just Hmm. understanding that when you're putting together your messages, and I believe, so what's you're saying, next question is, so what's the answer to that? How should we think about that? Go back to the marketing mirror, human connection, relevancy reflection of the person themselves, and then reflection of other people using your product or service. I think you're pretty safe if you can stay in that, but you still have to understand your strategy, your messaging should be unique and different for every platform. Yes, And I know that that could be overwhelming, but what you say and do on Facebook does not work on Twitter and it does not work on TikTok, if that makes sense. What I'm hearing here is that The nuance is that every platform has a unique way in which how people are consuming it, even in their, like as individuals, not as the platform putting the information forward. And then perhaps from a campaign standpoint, having a unified campaign, a message, a purpose of why that campaign is going out, but then having the expertise and the nuance to know that the information relating to that campaign is going to Twitter It has to be different and formulated in a way that is different than email or, you know, on and on. I see where you're going there and and really thinking through the the nuance of of how the media is ultimately being consumed. Yeah. Yeah. It's really important, especially with the place that we find ourselves in. We won't go down this rabbit hole, but if this was just a concept or a theory or an opinion, we could have you know, an interesting conversation. But I talk to people all the time that either my friend, my co-author, Jenny Black, who's a therapist, who says, you know, screens and cell phones used to be an issue and a problem when I had children and marriages coming in to sit down in front of me. But now it is the issue. It is the number Mm. one problem. You and I both probably have friends that are addicted to or become enraged 
by certain news channels that they and this is really prevalent unfortunately in the boomer generation because they trusted news they trusted Walter Cronkite back in the day there was three channels ABC NBC and CBS and they were just unbiased telling the news now all of a sudden it's like I call it like the World Wrestling Federation. There's a story, <laughs> there's a storyline, there's a good guy, there's a bad guy, and everybody kind of knows it's all fake, but we love to be part of the storyline like a good comic book or superhero yeah. and cheer the good guy on while he destroys the bad guy. Sometimes the bad guy wins. That's become a lot of our media and our news sources, unfortunately. It, it makes me laugh. I, I went and you talk about the kind of how it can infuriate people. I went and sat down with my father when he was watching the news. And and I just said to him, I'm like, oh, we're just consuming some propaganda here. <laughs> and we have differing political views. And just in saying that was enough to piss him off, right? Like, no, obviously, we, you know, we're not mad at each other, but it was just a little jab of, of just seeing different things and putting it that way. You know, it's amazing how we feel about our media now and the news we consume and how the news is, is really no longer news. And it also brings me to a point, and I don't know who, who coined this phrase or who f- was first to say it, but that the media or the news is not about telling the facts. It's about telling the people what they should be talking about. And if you look at a larger level, how how important it is to control the narrative. And let's face it, like, you know, governments have wanted to do this for, for ages. Or they always have. They always find ways to do it. And I don't want to go down a, a conspiracy hole here other than just to look forward and say governments and organizations look to control the message. They have PR people there who are out there and the news is not there to report the facts. It's, I mean, whoever is incentivizing them to put forward a message as the message that gets told ultimately to persuade the people. Yeah. Well, it it's kind of like YouTube, right? People think that there's some kind of big conspiracy to destroy human beings on YouTube. And the reality is, again, the media is the message. It's the platform. So mm. if you were to, and anyone can do this experiment, open up a fresh YouTube account and start searching for things like, Wakeboarding, you know, watch wakeboarding videos. I guarantee you, if that's all you search, you will get lots and lots of wakeboarding videos. You might get some ads thrown in for sunscreen and maybe other kind of tropical experiences or, you know, things in that outdoor sports, water sports thing. But for the most part, you'll get wakeboarding videos. So you can go down the rabbit hole and spend hours and days and years watching wakeboarding videos in the same way that, again, we become the product that, unfortunately, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of young girls and young boys can go to YouTube and say, how can I lose five pounds? Mm. And then a year later have gone down the rabbit hole of being inundated with video after video after video of unhealthy body image and weight loss and just yeah yeah as one thing you want and yeah. so yes the algorithm needs to be adjusted yes we need to have more ethical marketing from a okay you saw and you know and you have the data that that young girl what she was doing you could have inserted 
more positive body image and message video suggestions to her, but you didn't because again, we become the product, meaning eyeballs, long periods of time, selling ads, et cetera. So those are just things that that I think about and I work through, not from a digital media is all bad, but from when you think about marketing strategy for clients, it's really good to understand you know, how you format and form these messages because the person on the other screen is dealing with all these things, right? Yes. So it's not just, they're not looking necessarily just for your product so they can buy. They're living in this alternate reality that we call cyberspace. And I call it our digital souls now because it has become more than just a tool. It's an extension of who we are and our bodies. And it's only going to get more immersive. So, so again, coming full circle, staying human, staying relevant, making sure you insert social proof. Those are all important things. I want to switch gears and talk a bit about the math of marketing mm-hmm. and what that looks like and how to measure. And so how in your years of experience in, in the world of digital marketing, I love that you've put yourself as an OG of, of digital marketing because it's you've been in the game a long time. Yeah. How do you successfully put math to marketing? Yeah. What I have always, always loved about digital marketing, even in the early, early days, is that it was the first form that you could accurately, it was the first platform that you could accurately measure. And it became really my sales pitch. In the early 2000s, one of the things I did even before that, but this is one of the things I did here in Nashville when I moved to Nashville and I started my digital agency, I had a lot of contacts at that time in the music business. And so I would go and talk to my friends and people I knew and referrals in the music business. And I would ask them, how do you measure your ROI your return on your spends, your marketing spends for your artist. And at that time, the marketing spends were covers of magazines or you would pay for, you know, for them to get on tour with a bigger artist or whatever it may be. And they would always say, or you make a music video, you would say, oh, that's easy. We see a blip in sales. Mm. That was their answer. We see a blip in sales. If I spend $100,000 on this music video and we get it rotated on MTV or CMT or whatever channel, every time it plays, we see that week, we see a small blip in sales or $50,000 for the cover of that fan magazine. We saw a blip in sales for that first two weeks. I'm sorry. I just got to tap into something. I didn't realize this. Is that how MTV worked? You basically go pay them to play a music video for you? Well... (laughs) the record labels had relationships with MTV and depending on what biographies you've read, payola was a, and still is, but not as much a very real thing on the early days of MTV and radio, especially payola meant, Hey, we're coming into town and we've got, I've got this new band. I want you to listen to the single by the way, would you like to go out to this really expensive restaurant? And we've got some, you know, handbags that we were just given by Gucci and we're just giving them all to all the managers, you know, that kind of thing. Yes, it went on and it, it still goes on. 
But getting back to the point, that is how accurate measurement was. And even in Nielsen reporting, you know, the supposedly king of data television information, it basically consisted of people sitting in their houses with a special set-top box that they could push buttons and measure things. And so you had, you know, X amount of thousands of people around the country going, yes, I like this, or this person watched this for, you know, an hour, or they didn't watch it. So that was the extent of measurement. And then along came digital and things as simple as email marketing. And my pitch was, hey, I know you're spending all this money. What if I told you that we could build a list of the fans of your artist and you could speak to them regularly and they could speak back and you could measure it to see how effective it was. Mm-hmm. And you can offer them and drive them to places to buy things. It sounds kind of silly today, but that was brand new. So things like open rates and click throughs and, you know, did they click through to the site and what percentage then went on to call and make an order or purchase That data is invaluable and understanding the data, understanding how to interpret that data, it's gotten much more sophisticated. And with things like Google Analytics and all kinds of tools and things that you can use to go really deep on your marketing strategies and tracking ads and building funnels that you can know exactly where somebody fell off of the funnel or they purchased or, you know, what content they responded to that got them to then buy. This is all really, really important to look at and to know. But I think even more important that I'm still to this day and never cease to be amazed, Corey, things like lifetime customer value, average Mm -hmm. order value. I have sat through so many client meetings and sales meetings and They'll say, well, we're working on uh, lifetime value, but we don't know exactly. It's kind of in this range. So part of my job many times is to also be a business analyst and help the client think through, you know, you think that you're getting a good return when you say, okay, Bob, I'm going to give you X amount of dollars to run these ads. And if I can get a return on my ad spend of at least two times my investment returned or three times or whatever it is. Then I'm, I feel good. And so you come back to them and you're like, hey, we got a 1.5. That's not that great. Well, what's your lifetime value of your customer? Oh, we don't know. See, those are questions that return on ad spend ROAS is just one little piece of measurement. And it's not really the most accurate because, for instance, here's a data thing for you. Here's a math thing that if your lifetime value of a customer, say, is $500 over the next 18 months, and you're selling a $100 product right up front, and your investment is, say, $150 on ad spend. And I say, okay, you spent $150, and we sold on this customer, and they bought a product for $100, and they said, well, I'm in the hole $50. Well, if your lifetime value is $500, no, you're not. You've actually, you're way ahead because you're measuring the lifetime value of that customer. And I've given you the, you've captured their email, their information, their cell phone number, et cetera. And so you can actually lose money on the sale in order to actually make money in the next 18 months. 
that's that initial sales and investment in the future engagement with that customer. Exactly. Yeah. There's a couple of things that come to mind. One, going back to email marketing. I don't know what it is. I love email marketing. I think it's still good, it's, very effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a fascinating way and, and an interesting way to measure success. And then as an example, in the world of investor marketing and investor engagement, we've been doing newsletters for our clients mm-hmm. and getting them in the hands of investors and brokers and, and the market in general. And as an example of measurement, we had about a 40% open rate, which is quite high when you look at typical open rates. And then it plummeted to 3%. Mm. And so a couple of things happened. One, being able to measure and see that all of a sudden nobody's receiving this, followed by investors phoning in saying, I haven't received my newsletter. What's going on? And it was so, one, it's great to see the data, but was so validating that having people actually phone in and say, I'm not getting the education you're sending me on a biweekly, what's going on? And so it goes to show the power of that, that, that people start to get in the habit of engaging with a brand. And, and further to that, the details, you can't just be sending them stuff that you're trying to sell them. It's about educating and, and keeping people abreast of the industry and things that are changing. And so I thought that was a really, really interesting experience when it comes to the power of email marketing for engaging with investors, but the same thing for customers. There's a path there as well. Absolutely. And I think that was a great example of just knowing your customer and human connection and realizing that people want and they get into habits. And so they may not even read that email regularly, but just knowing that they've gotten into use the habit of seeing it pop up every so-and-so. Yeah. And that's the power of it. That's where you know you've done your marketing well, is you've hit the right people. It's relevant to them. And they got into a psychological habit of seeing it in their inbox all the time. I also think when it comes to email, it is the ultimate endpoint in which the consumer of that media, which it is a form of media coming to their mailbox, they have ultimate control over that. And so if you've earned their trust and, and the, the ability to be in their inbox and they haven't unsubscribed, you're at the closest point of having a strong relationship that can move over to an offline relationship if it was the form of engaging somebody for a sale or in the the form of digital sales and marketing them to pulling the trigger on your product. So I think a lot of companies don't realize how powerful email marketing is. And to take it to the next level, I didn't even realize they have conferences just dedicated to email marketing. Oh, yeah. To me, oh my God. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, that is a could be top of the funnel, but it's an ongoing nurturing and relationship, one of the strongest ones that you can have. And I would take it a step further and say, if you're not using cell phone communication and marketing with your clients and customers, for most demographics, that's very, very effective because you have a very, very, very high open and read rate on your cell phone versus email, which can go to spam, can be filtered out, which might get buried at the time of day with Are you talking uh, WhatsApp and text. I'm talking about text marketing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Text marketing. If you can invite your customers, if it's appropriate to your demographic to opt in, I get texts regularly from companies and organizations that I have elected to opt in. And I'll tell you this, I see them regularly and I read almost every single one of them because 
we haven't gotten to the point yet, and maybe it's just we haven't been trained, or maybe the technology's there to to start putting things into spam text messaging buckets mm. or overlooking them. Again, it's such an extension of our arms and our minds that I would argue that most people are more connected to their text messages than they are their emails in some senses. So it can be very effective as well. Interesting. What about audience building? There's you know, the, the adage that if you want to go build a business, don't raise much money, build a product and try to sell it. Start by building a big audience and then sell that product into the audience. But have we gotten to a point that it's only pay to play? Like, how do you build audiences now? Well, the old fashioned way. You hear in the news a lot in the marketing world about privacy issues. And there was a kind of a seven to eight year run that we had with Facebook that for many people, it was the marketer's dream. It was you could push some levers and flip some buttons, flip some switches. And is if you knew how to target and grab the, the information and pixel people, it had this amazing breadth and depth of targeting data. You could go on Facebook and if you knew how to do it, you could target pinpoint somebody who went to a store, then they got in their car and then they went here and people who like this and that. And then all of a sudden, Apple and Facebook and now Google next year doing the same thing. They're like, yeah, that's not cool. Too many complaints. We don't want to do that. We want to kind of own our own little ecosystem. So we're going to get rid of third party data. And that's been all over the news. And now it's really hard to target like that on some of these platforms. It's just removed. You can't target people based on socioeconomic or even their likes or dislikes anymore. So it's come full circle. What do you do? Well, I've been telling my clients now for a few years, start building first party data. What's first party data? What you just said, it's data that you own. It's building your audience. How do you do that? You offer value and get them to opt into your email list. You do the old fashioned way and you treat them kindly. You treat them like human beings and get them to opt in with their social media accounts to follow you, to give you their cell phone numbers. And yes, build your audience. It takes time. It takes effort. We've gotten lazy as marketers because we could use third party data. I think those days are going away. And now it's come full circle again to you got to be a good copywriter. You have to write and use really good creative and engage your target audience and invite them into your world. Offer them value, be human, build that marketing mirror, that human mirror mm -hmm. I was talking about, and they will opt in. And this is the whole purpose of a sales funnel. You know, it's top of the funnel, middle of the funnel, and then bottom of the funnel purchase. You have to educate, you have to talk to them, but offering value is the best way to do that. And that could be simple as, you know, doing a free webinar regularly and getting people to opt in, sending them free reports and studies and, and white papers. It could be things like you're doing right now is on your podcast, telling them to go subscribe to get extra bonus material or episodes, whatever it may be. I agree with you. Building audience is now more important than ever. And there's going to be a lot of people that have not done it that are going to suffer for it when Google next year says, we're not going to allow third-party data either. Hmm. So they've been relying on ads. They've been relying on 
putting the money into the machine and driving their target traffic, what are you going to do when that's not there anymore? Well, I think then it's a matter of allocating that budget over to, as you're suggesting, going old school and you know, good copywriting and putting yourself out there, delivering value and not just relying on a catchy ad to and a quick hook to grab somebody's email. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I tell clients all the time, would you rather reach a million people on Facebook with your ad, or would you rather have a very committed 100,000 people email list? I'd take the email list any day because people are fickle. You're relying on other people's platform. I mean, if you really think about it, again, think about the logic of building your whole business on the back of a platform that you have no control over. I've seen this time and time again, Corey, where investors invest, business ventures, business plans are built on the back of a Google or a Facebook or... Yeah, it's... It's it's amazing. That's always all in my mind as well. Yeah. You know, some of these these companies can take millions and millions of bucks from investors and they can build an incredible business and overnight it's just shut down, whether it be regulatory or an algorithm change that they just say, no, we don't, don't allow that anymore. And that's actually really fascinating. And then it comes back. Own the audience, own that email list. So interesting. Well, if you want to see a good example of that, of this, look at Amazon. They have built their own world with their own wall around it. That if the internet were to shut down tomorrow, meaning, you know, people couldn't access, you know, the web, if, you know, whatever, they could actually survive because. They could create catalogs and mail them to you. They could drop them off in front of your house because they know where you live, what you like to purchase, what your buying habits have been. They have your email. They have your address. You know, they have your credit card numbers for that matter. So they have built their own ecosystem. And I would say go study that because honestly, in the digital world, that's what everyone is compared to. If you want to get into the e-commerce game, you're being compared to Amazon because they've changed the psyche of everybody to go, oh, Corey can't deliver his product within 24 to 48 hours. This customer journey is confusing. It, it takes me more than two or three clicks to purchase. I'm hmm. gone. I'm out. I'm not somewhere else. The only thing there, though, that, that's missing from Amazon is that personal touch. Well, you could argue that. I would also argue, too, that my Amazon experience is very personalized and different than yours. Because when I go there, it shows me what I've purchased, what I might like based on that. So so yes, it, there. but there's no human personalization. Exactly. Pardon me. The, the words should have been human connection. Certainly personalized, deeply personalized. And that's the power of it. But it's, it's missing that human connection, in, in my opinion. And that goes to show we will sacrifice, we will give up human connection in exchange for personalization. And that's a whole nother discussion. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. Where do you go next? You have a podcast and I you're, I think, 99 episodes in published that I saw. Yep. I believe it's called The Human Voice. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's called The Human Voice. I started a podcast a few years ago and really what I, I'm most interested in, if you haven't learned by now, is I like talking to other people and learning their stories and exploring some of these things. And somebody told me a while back, they said, if you want to meet the people you really look up to that are famous, maybe they're not famous, but you want to have conversations, 
the best way to do it is to start a podcast because at that time, and even today to a certain degree, rarely will people say no to going on a podcast because everybody likes free publicity. Everybody likes the idea of being on a radio show or being on TV, even if we know it's not the same, but it's kind of the same, right? It's PR. So it's really easy to get people to say yes. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to do that. I want to talk. I want to learn. I want to grow. I'm a lifelong learner. And so I just talk, started talking to people about the things that I'm most interested in. And one day I might be talking to an Anglican priest. Another day I might be talking to you know, someone in the media might be talking to a famous author. You know, I've interviewed, you know, Stephen Pressfield, who wrote The War of Art. I've interviewed Sue Monk Kidd, who wrote The Secret Life of Bees. I've talked to all kinds of people. But the one thing they all have in common, if you've listened to it, is there's that human story that we all have. Hmm. And in that human story is the nuggets that I want to go to. Because I believe, Corey, You know, you hear that saying, the problem with today is we compare ourselves with each other. And if we'd stop comparing ourselves with each other, then we wouldn't have some of the issues we have. Because we look at Corey and Corey's successful in finance and what am I doing with my life? I suck, right? Like, stop comparing yourself to Corey. I think the answer is the opposite. And this is kind of the basis of my podcast. Problem is that not that we're comparing ourselves to each other. We don't compare ourselves enough. And what I mean by that is we only like to see the highlights and the good things. And that's what social media is doing to us. We we go to Facebook or Instagram and we go, well, I must suck because look at their lives. But the reality is that's only a tiny part that that person has chosen to give a false reality of, I need to compare myself to what were the the pains and the sleepless nights and the struggles and the trauma and what brought you to your success today? Because I guarantee you, every person that I talk to has a story like that. And so I want to compare myself to that. But mm. metaphorically speaking, I want to talk to them and learn it and hear it and give an opportunity for them to share that story and for other people to hear it, because I think it's so important coming full circle to why we even started this conversation was you've got to connect on a human level and the human level is not just success and winning and grinding success looks like hard nights and bankruptcy and struggle and starting over and pain and divorce and death. That's what success looks like. And those are the stories not to focus on the negative, but I want to hear the whole human experience. And vulnerability breeds vulnerability. So that's what my podcast is about. That's fascinating. I just, in, a, in the research for our episode here, I, I came across it last night. So I'll, I'm going to put it on the list and, and have a listen because it's, it's so true. I've come to see with the guests that I've interviewed now that there's a common thread among them. And, and one of the things is, is like, to your point, success is not built on just winning. It's built on the foundations of success of failure and hardship and building resiliency and coming back to the table and and never giving up. And and so it's an interesting point you make of comparing yourself more and don't compare yourself to their success that, that, that just is on the surface. Compare yourself to the hardships they're going through. Are your hardships hard enough right now? 
Maybe not. And maybe that's why you're not successful. Yeah, I would encourage everybody to go pick up a little book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Hmm. It's life-changing. I don't know if you've read it, but he was a survivor of, of the Nazi concentration camps as a psychiatrist who documented and actually used that horrific experience as a study to say, what is it that is the true meaning? What people survived in those situations, what people thrive, thrived is not a good word, survived. And what was the true meaning of joy and, and happiness? And his premise is, is that we have to all find some meaning or purpose in our lives of what we're going through, even if there's horrendous as the a Nazi concentration camp. And what he saw was that the people had a tendency to live and survive if they were able to do that and not give up, but say, I'm going to find beauty and purpose in music and playing a violin as the world is burning down around me because there is value and beauty in that violin. I'm going to live for my children because they give me meaning and purpose in life and I've got to survive for them. So, you know, that's a whole nother discussion, but I think that is the secret. It's not about, you know, grinding it out or winning or being successful. It's finding purpose and then success may, but it usually does. It does ensue and joy does ensue. But those things can't be the focus of why you're doing what you do. And that's that purpose, finding that purpose. And again, getting back to my podcast, that's what I talk a lot about. Hmm. Fascinating. What comes to mind for me, and I don't want to go too deep into it right now, but is we're having a crisis of abundance, which is leading to a poverty of purpose within our society. And that in itself is, is a huge ball of wax to, to unravel. But coming back to Viktor Frankl and the whole concept of finding purpose and, and putting purpose to life is, is huge. And I think it's a great way to end this conversation. And I, I hope we have another one of these because I've really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me, Corey. I really enjoyed it. And again, my listeners, if they want to go to the human voice with Bob Hutchins and they could Google me on all the different social channels and LinkedIn and, and Instagram, if they want to connect that way as well. That's wonderful. We'll put all on the show notes and Bob, great to meet you. It's good to meet you, Corey. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.